Good morning, church. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever known someone for a really long time and then all of a sudden, sudden learn something new about them that you didn't know before? I'll give you an example. I'll use myself. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City Bible Church. If you uh, are new, maybe that's new information right there. Um, but for the rest of you, I've known different ones of you for different lengths of time. And some of you uh, know that I like to do stuff outside. I like to hunt, go camping. Uh, one of my favorite things is to cook a meal over a campfire, like axe throwing, archery, shooting, all those things. Those of you that know me, no surprise there. All right, so here is the soul revealing, the embarrassing part of me you probably don't know. I, first of all, I'm not a musical person, but in high school, I was part of something called show choir. Anybody know what show choir is? Let's just say there's singing and there's dancing. So picture that. Something you didn't know about me, uh, I was in show choir. The main reason, there were lots of pretty girls in show choir. So enough said. We're going to start today on a 14-week series on the book of Isaiah. And the reason I wanted to get you thinking about things you don't know about someone that you've been familiar with for a long time is because Isaiah, for most of us, if we're believers, we've been in church a while, Isaiah is very familiar to us. We love Isaiah. It's got a lot of messianic prophecies. At Christmas time, we read prophecies from Isaiah about Jesus. And so it's very familiar to us. But I encourage us over the next 14 weeks to expect to learn new things about not only the book of Isaiah itself, but about the Lord that Isaiah points to. So that's our expectation. That's what I hope, uh, including today. Let's hope we see parts of Isaiah and his message that either is new to us or it renews a meaningfulness, an inf inf uh, kind of inspiration, or even a, cor a correction, a call to Christ that maybe we didn't see before. This 14 weeks is just going to be highlights. I don't know if you know, but Isaiah is a very long book, and we don't have time to go through the whole thing. I've asked some friends, other pastors, if they've ever gone through the book of Isaiah, and usually it is, that would take two years. So most of the time we do a series in Isaiah, it's like this, hit the high points, the parts that uh, we feel would most edify the church, but encourage you to read the whole book. These will be teasers, these will be uh, the parts that we feel would encourage us most to look to Christ. So let's think about Isaiah with this idea. The basic message of Isaiah is we need a Messiah. We need a Messiah. That's his overarching message. As you read through the book, you're going to see why we need the Messiah. You're going to see what if we don't have a Messiah. You're going to see why we can't be our own Messiah. And then you're going to see the pointing to the true Messiah. So what about this Isaiah? Who was he? Let's think about some historical data. I get to be the first one introducing the series. So I get to tell you a few details. Isaiah was a prophet. Mind-blowing, right? He was a prophet. 
What is a prophet? Well, uh, at its basic definition, we understand a prophet to be someone who's sent by God to bring a message from God. That's the basic understanding of what a prophet is. We see some aspects of, of a prophet in the Old Testament and a little in the New Testament that are uh, unique in that God often gave a prophet power that would help undergird the message, to point people to the message, saying, no, this person really does have the power of God given to him by God, therefore his message must be from God as well. And so not only did a prophet in the Old Testament speak the message of God, but sometimes God allowed them to tell the future. Very often it was kind of cryptic, uh, and it was a time when someone would all of a sudden be in that future and say, wait a second, God told me this before, therefore the other message God said is true as well. A prophet uh, sometimes was given the insight to reveal hidden things. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if you remember when uh, Saul was going to become king and uh, God sent a prophet to him to reveal that he would be king. And one of the th- ways that Saul knew it was true is God, God revealed a hidden thing to Saul a uh, very simple thing about his father's lost donkeys, but it was a hidden thing revealed to Saul. Things like that. Or giving the prophet special wisdom to lead the country or be a judge over the people with wisdom uh, or to correct the people, encourage the people. So that is a prophet. We also know that Isaiah is the son of Amos. We don't know anything else about Amos. Uh, but he was the father of Isaiah. Here's something that the Bible doesn't specifically say, but there are a lot of clues that would lead us to believe this, is that Isaiah was part of the royal family or in some way connected to uh, nobility in, uh, in Judah, in the nation of Judah. And the reason we believe that is because he spent a lot of time in the court of the kings. And... Uh, even in more so than the, the uh, capacity of prophet. So it leads a lot of uh, scholars to think he was part of the royal family. When did Isaiah live? His lifespan was somewhere roughly around 740 to 680 B.C. And so give or take a few years here or there. Some people say he lived and prophesied for 40 years. Some say 50. Some say 60 but somewhere in there. And of course, this is roughly 700 years before Christ. Isaiah lived during the time of these four kings of Judah. Uzziah, also called Azariah, his son Jotham, his son Ahaz, which was a notoriously evil king, and then his son Hezekiah. And so these are the kings that we'll see not only if you read in the book of 2 Kings, but also in, the, in Isaiah, you'll see different ones of those kings mentioned at different times. Isaiah lived during the capture of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, by the Assyrians, and then the war of the Assyrians against the southern kingdom of Judah, and, uh, and then he foretold the eventual falling of Jerusalem 
to the kingdom of Babylon. Isaiah has some other prophets that were contemporaries of his. Those would be Amos, Hosea, and Micah. So if you go and read those prophets, those books in the Bible, you can in your mind connect the things happening there, the things foretold there and prophesied there to the things in Isaiah. Now, here's some interesting things about Isaiah and the book. The book of Isaiah is quoted very often in the New Testament, roughly around 60 times, which means it is the second most quoted book in the New Testament. Anybody, any guesses on the first? Psalms. That is correct. Psalms is the most quoted. Isaiah is the second most quoted. Very important uh, book influencing the message of the New Testament. For instance, have you ever heard this phrase? Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's in Isaiah. Very interesting, right? There are a lot of even phrases from Isaiah that make it into common language, common culture. We, we don't know for sure, but there's uh, a pretty good idea that Isaiah was martyred and specifically uh, martyred because he was speaking God's truth uh, and the king uh, Manasseh, an evil king who uh, killed a lot of godly people. Uh, there is this uh, Jewish tradition in the Talmud that King Manasseh killed Isaiah, which would connect to Hebrews chapter eleven thirty-seven. 37. Uh, you can go back and read it. It describes how God's prophets, God's people were killed in many different, many different ways. And so Isaiah could have been one of those. Isaiah had some, had, had two sons recorded in, in the book and they had interesting names. Now I know some of you have interesting or unique names, but be thankful that your name is not a remnant shall return or quickly to the spoils. God gave these uh, these young men, sons of Isaiah, names that were symbolic, names that were symbolic of God's judgment, uh, God's promise. And uh, we see that happen with other prophets. Uh, Hosea is one that comes to mind. So these are details. These are backgrounds. But what's the real point? Well, Isaiah covers several themes. Isaiah, in his book, if you're reading through that one main theme you're going to see throughout the book is the calling out of idolatry, pointing out the sin of idolatry, both in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there are sections of Isaiah where he speaks to, um, on God's behalf, the different surrounding nations, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, uh, Damascus or, or Syria and Egypt. And there will be all these different portions of Isaiah where he's calling out those other nations. But specifically, Isaiah is sent as a prophet to the kingdom of Judah and to those kings and to those people. And uh, as he's calling out idolatry, calling out sin, he's not just pointing fingers and saying, this is your sin. But then he, by God's instruction, he points out the consequences of sin. Uh, you've probably known this if you've had children, been around children, seen children from a distance. 
It's one thing to tell them their behavior is wrong. It's another thing to show them the consequences of their behavior in immediate effects. Uh, so that's what's happening with Isaiah. He's, by God's instruction, calling out idolatry and pointing to the consequences, which include, uh, he's saying, look at the northern kingdom of Israel because Judah could observe that uh, God's judging his people by sending Assyria to wage war against Israel and capture uh, Israel, that, uh, that nation, and send the people into uh, captivity. Um, and then he's warning about the impending war even on Judah, which the Assyrians then, after they conquered Israel, came down and waged war against Judah and captured uh, Jerusalem and set up uh, Hezekiah as, as kind of a puppet king. Uh, and then later, Babylon came in and ultimately captured Judah, uh, Judah and Jerusalem and sent uh, all of those people into either captivity, exile, or subjugation. So he's warning of these consequences, but the best parts of Isaiah are saying, you're a sinner, your sin has consequences, but there is hope. There is a future hope in which you should put your trust. And that is the hope of a Messiah. So that part of Isaiah is pointing to a promise of restoration of God's people through the Messiah. This anointed one who would fulfill all of the promises of God's redemption, of, God's, uh, of his rescue of his people, of his restoration of his people to the place of, of honor among God, uh, God's presence, and then among the world. So it is, uh, it is a call to put their hope in the Messiah and not in other things. And Isaiah's na very name is part of that message. Isaiah's name means the salvation of the Lord, or God is salvation. Uh, it's connected to both the name Joshua and Jesus, they're all from the same root, meaning the salvation of the Lord. So that's all background. That's all big picture. But what about our passage today? Isaiah 61, 1 through 7. You might think we are starting a brand new book of the Bible. Why are we going all the way to the end to have the overview message, the overview passage? Because it points out the point of Isaiah, that we need a Messiah. We need a Savior. It's true for Isaiah's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. It was true for the northern kingdom of Israel. It was true for all the other people in that day. It's true for us. It's true for everybody that's ever lived since then. Everybody that will live until Christ returns. We all need a savior. And so let's think about why we need a savior. Well, we are broken people living in a broken world. This is one of the reasons that we can say Jesus is the redeemer we need. Because we are broken people living in a broken world. I thought about just listing all the ways that we're broken. Either we ourselves or 
the world around us. But then I thought, you know, I would love for us to paint a picture of that in our minds. And what came to mind as a perfect display of the brokenness of the world and how individuals experience that brokenness is Les Miserables. Anybody read the book by Victor Hugo, written in 1862, Les Miserables? Well, I'm sorry for you guys. It was 1,400 pages long. I never read it. Everybody else never read it. We're probably familiar with it from the Broadway musical. Remember, I was in Shokor. I actually got to be in a production of Les Mis, one of my bright memories of years gone by. So we're mostly familiar with it, either the Broadway show or the two TV miniseries, uh, one by BBC more recently, or maybe the movie, or the movie before that, or the movie before that. Lots of times Les Mis has been put out into uh, public culture. So we're, most of us are very familiar with it. And so I don't have time to tell you all the story of 1,400 pages, but I want us just to think through the brokenness of the world and how individuals experience that brokenness by some of the characters in, in that story of Les Mis. Well, first of all, the main character is Jean Valjean. And we start that story with him in poverty. Poverty in a way that he couldn't provide for himself and his, his sister even to, to eat, to live. And so that brokenness of poverty leads him to make poor decisions, including uh, crime. He steals uh, in order to provide for himself and his family. Well, then he is captured, put into prison. Uh, and receives a sentence far uh, exceeding the crime. He's sentenced to five years in, uh, in hard labor. And so there's pain and suffering. We see he then escapes. Actually, he has tried to escape so many times that his sentence of five years got stretched to 19 years. Well, finally, he was able to escape. But he's running. The whole book uh, and the whole story, he's like running, trying to get away from uh, specifically uh, one individual who's trying to capture him and put him back in prison. So there's fear, there's anxiety, there's uh, this sense of dread. Well, then the next character, of course, is Javert, who is that, uh, that agent of the government, the law, to try to catch Jean Valjean. That is his sole purpose. He is not going to enforce other laws. He's trying to chase this bread thief. The whole of his life is after Jean Valjean. And so there we have the picture of malice and revenge and injustice and hatred built up in, Jean, in uh, Javert's life and heart. So he's the picture of that brokenness. Well, then we have uh, this uh, faded uh, character, uh, Fantine. And she, is, uh, she represents uh, several different aspects of hopelessness uh, and brokenness. And so she is uh, a, an example of the mistreatment of women, uh, of being the subject of immorality, uh, of being the subject of gossip and hurt and backbiting and, and rejection of society, and the ultimate sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And that's the brokenness of 
Fantine. And then her daughter, uh, Cosette, she represents brokenness that uh, many young people feel, uh, abandonment, uh, the, the abandonment of being an orphan, of not knowing uh, her parents, and uh, specifically never learns about her father. Uh, so the loss of parents and the loss of family and, and loved ones. Uh, she ex- grows up experiencing loneliness because she is uh, taken in by family that abuses her, neglects her, makes her do uh, the menial tasks as a servant and not treated with love and respect and nurture. So she is a representative of that kind of brokenness. And then uh, Marius, the love interest of the grown-up Cosette. And he represents uh, this this, uh, opposition to an unjust government. Uh, But he brings with that opposition to unjust government uh, violence and mob violence and war and death and all the brokenness that comes from the injustice of both governments and people that war together. And the last one I'll point out is uh, Thenardier who, and his wife. And these are greedy people. These, they rob graves. They, uh, they, they trick people. They extort people. Uh, they lie. They steal. They are the representation of that kind of brokenness. And if you watch the, the whole story, either the musical or the book or the TV shows or whatever, you see all of this brokenness spread all throughout that, uh, that story that includes death and loss and grief and suffer, suffering and helplessness. All of these aspects of brokenness we see in the world. We experience it in some way or another. Maybe one of those descriptions fit a brokenness that specifically you've experienced. So maybe you're experiencing it now or trying to work through that and move on. But it's no secret that we are broken people and live in a broken world. And we want to say, why? Why are we broken people? And why do we live in a broken world? Well, we have a connection to the people of Isaiah's day. We are living in exile. Just as the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were sent into exile, the people of Judah were going to be sent into exile. We live in exile, in a world of exile. We're captives because of rebellion against God. That's why the world is broken. That's why we suffer, because of humanity's rebellion against God. Now, we can't always draw a line and say, I'm suffering this thing because I sinned or someone else sinned. But the big picture is all suffering, all pain, all loss, all brokenness is because of humanity's rebellion against God. And not just what other people did to rebel against God and sin against him, but our own. We are part of that rebellion, every one of us. We own that rebellion, a sinful rebellion against the creator of God. That's the root of all brokenness. And so just as Isaiah calls out the idolatry of Judah and Israel and all the surrounding nations, We, too, 
are guilty of idolatry. That's what sin is. We think of idolatry as statues and offerings to statues and prayers to false gods. That is idolatry. But there is other more insidious and hidden forms of idolatry. And that is any time we displace God from the throne of our lives and we put something else there. And the number of things that we could put there uh, is as many as individuals are. Because it could, be, uh, it could be the things that we love that, that are not honoring to God. It could be our careers, our family. It could be uh, different versions of pleasure or self-indulgement. But ultimately, it all comes down to this. We take God off the throne of our lives and we put ourselves there. And we worship other things. We submit our lives to other things. We are ruled by, controlled by, and led by things other than God. So we can't just point to the people of Isaiah's day and say they were idolaters, they deserved exile. We are idolaters and we, exert, we deserve exile. And that's why we find ourselves living in this broken world. And that's why we need a savior. And this is the message of Isaiah. But who is that savior? That's what Isaiah points to. He wants to make sure we know we're not our own Messiah. We're not our own Savior. You see, sometimes we want to say, I know what the Bible says, and I know how bad everybody else is, but I'm not that bad. It's not all that bad for me. I can justify my actions. I can compare myself. And I say, I'm really not that bad. Well, Isaiah wants us to know, yes, it is that bad. And our old ways will betray us. One thing that happens in the book of Isaiah is as war is coming on Judah, they start to think, maybe we'll, maybe we'll appeal down to Egypt. Egypt will come and rescue us. And God is saying, you want to go back to the old way of slavery to Egypt, be enslaved and connected to them for your rescue, when here I am, the God who promises to be with you and to rescue you and redeem you, and you're turning to your old ways. What's well, the same with us? We return to our old ways, our old thinking, when we try to be our own Messiah. We think our good works will be enough. This is one of the messages of the Bible. Your good works will never be enough. You cannot do enough good, help enough people, give enough money, avoid enough sin to make you right with God. In fact, one of the famous verses from Isaiah, and I might be stealing this from some other pastor who's going to preach later in the, in the series, but one of the, one of the most famous verses is this from Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. We need a Messiah, a Savior, and we cannot be it. So who is it? No surprise, Jesus. All of Isaiah's message was pointing to Jesus. All of Isaiah's speaking of God's promise, his Redeemer, his hope and salvation was all pointing to Jesus. 
So let's think about Jesus as the Redeemer we need. Now, first of all, we might, you might be a little bit skeptical and say, well, Isaiah didn't know about Jesus. How do we know it's really about Jesus? Are we just looking back and saying, oh, this stuff really fits the way Jesus lived. So let's assign portions of the Old Testament to say it's about Jesus. Well, let's start with this. Jesus himself said that he was the Savior that Isaiah promised. How do we know that? Because the portion of Scripture that we read today from Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus quoted when he started his ministry. He stood up and was saying, I'm starting this ministry of redemption that God has given me, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to read this passage from Isaiah. So Jesus intentionally and upfront says, I'm going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. So let's see what that prophecy is. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus did this. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So I want to pause there. When we have someone come and stand up to read for us in church, we usually tell them, hey, this is the passage you're going to read. And they take a Bible and they flip to it, right? And they read it. Well, something similar happened in the synagogues. They had a, a, a reading uh, plan lined out for us. You ever done a, a read, devotion plan, a reading plan where it told you all the days and what you're going to read? That's the way it was for their worship in the synagogues. They had different readings scheduled for different days. And so the preacher or whoever's going to teach that day didn't just come up and flip to a page and start reading. No, they, because they didn't have books and Bibles, they had big scrolls. So they took ahead of time the scroll of Isaiah, it says. They took the scroll of Isaiah and then they were opening it to that day's portion of reading. And they handed it to Jesus. This was the passage assigned for the day Jesus was there to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes Uh, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So God had planned for that to be read. Jesus read it. And then he said, I am the one. I am the Messiah who has finally come to fulfill this promise. And how did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus was more than talk. Jesus didn't say he was going to fulfill this. He lived his life leading to the cross intentionally. 
We know he did it intentionally because all on the way he would give these hints. And the closer he got and the more he explained it to his disciples, he was headed to the cross. Why? To take on himself our sins and become the sacrifice that makes us clean. All those uh, described as being in debt, he was the one that paid our debt. All those described to be in captivity, he took our place of captivity. All those who were described as being unclean and dishonored, he became unclean. He became dishonored for us. All those who were unholy, he became the sacrifice to make us holy in God's presence and in his eyes. So our brokenness is exposed by Jesus so that he can first lead us to repentance and then restore us to the glory that God intended for us, to the honor that God wants through us. One of the beautiful things about this description of what Jesus did is it points back to something that happened in the Old Testament. And it was the the year of Jubilee. You ever heard of the year of Jubilee? Also called the year of the Lord. Now, some would say, looking back, that didn't happen very often because the people of Israel were not very faithful. But this is what God intended uh, for the year of Jubilee. And see, hear how much it matches what Isaiah said and what Jesus said he would do. Well, the year of Jubilee, Jubilee actually means in Hebrew, the blast of the horn. And it's described in Leviticus 25. You ever want to go back and look at that? And so it's a Sabbath year of years. So it was 49 years, and the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And on a certain day of that year, they would blow this ram's horn. It would be an announcement to all the people, a time of celebration and rejoicing for a whole year. But how did that celebration and rejoicing play out? Well, it was a year of release from indebtedness. If you, had, if you were part of the Jewish people and you had debts, they were to be forgiveness. Uh, they were to be forgiven. There was uh, a release of people from all different kinds of bondage and prisons uh, and captives were set free. The slaves from the people of Israel were released uh, and property was returned to its original owners. If you remember, as the Exodus was happening, God divided up the, the promised land to different tribes and in those tribes, different families and individuals own different parts. Well, they could sell it over time to help pay their bills or to, to uh, farm more property. But on the year of Jubilee, it all went back. It all went back to the way God had planned it. So the returning of property. And it was this pointing to Jesus, the time when by his redemption and forgiveness, we will be set free, that we were slaves and prisoners and we would no longer be slaves to sin. The debt we owed will be paid. We were God's property, will be returned back to him. Uh, and we were set into a new life as new creation. As we finish up thinking about Jesus being our redeemer, our Messiah, I want to point you to chapter 3 of Isaiah. If you read chapter 3 and chapter 61, which is today's passage, you put them side by side, you get this picture of God's cursing of uh, judgment, the curses of judgment against God's people. 
and the blessings of restoration through Jesus. You put those together and you can see how they line up. So I want to just give you some overviews of that in hopes that you'll go and read them side by side. Chapter three will be the first thing I say in chapter 61, the second. God judges and charges. God has favor and comforts. Their vineyards will be devastated. Their vineyards will abound. They sinfully oppress the poor. God brings good news to the poor. God will strip them of their finery. God will give them a beautiful headdress. They will live in shame and dishonor. God will dress them in blessings and praises. They will fall by the sword. They will live in everlasting joy. And the promises go further than the judgment, where it says, God will bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, open the prison to those who are bound, and they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These are the promises of the Messiah. That's the message of Isaiah. So what are we going to do with it? Here are four ways we can live this out. First of all, depend. We need Jesus, not once, but every day. We need always to depend on Jesus. We never outgrow depending on our Redeemer. Rejoice. We are brought out of exile and into a new life. We have a jubilee. We have a year of the Lord. We're brought into the rest of God. Rejoice. When we sing God's praises as a church, that's part of that rejoicing. But we can live a life of joy. This new life then leads us to this, think about this. We walk. We follow Jesus daily through obedience, through faith and growth. And then proclaim. There are prisoners captives, those in bondage, those enslaved to sin. There are people that need to hear that there is one who will set them free, those who will make them see, those who will bring them rest, those who will heal their wounds. That is Jesus, and they need to hear. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Isaiah that you sent to call out sin, to point to the consequences, and then to point to the Savior. Thank you that Jesus stood up and said, I am the one who has come to set you free. And then you led him to the cross where he enacted your plan of redemption. God, as we turn our hearts to communion, to the Lord's table, would this sight of the beauty and the majesty of our Lord inform this important remembrance. We pray in his name. Amen.